0: What is the future for Hong Kong? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. While the world wrestles with the COVID-19 pandemic, there are a lot of eyes fixed on the Far East. Hong Kong enjoys a special status in China under its one country, two system principle, which allows for socialism and capitalism to coexist in Hong Kong. It was under British control until 1997. It was going to maintain that status until 2047. But China's been clashing with protesters in Hong Kong as it attempts to put in new security legislation, which would make it a crime to undermine Beijing's authority. It would also or could see China installing its own security agencies. The legislation passed this week is drawing international furor. China, for its part, is deflecting criticism, calling it an internal affair. And to ramp up the rhetoric even more, the US has stripped Hong Kong of its special status. Canada, which isn't exactly in Canada's or China's good graces, has made quiet comments. To get some more perspective on what's happening and where this could lead, I'm pleased to be joined by Elliot Tepper, the senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And Elliot, thank you for joining us.
1: Well, uh, nice to talk to you, Ed.
0: With with the world watching, what is China's endgame when it comes to Hong Kong?
1: The endgame has been clear from the beginning, that is, Hong Kong uh, and after uh, 150 years of being under British colonial control, reverted to China, sovereign China, and it was going to be part of China's sovereignty. Under an agreement in 1997, that's when uh, the 99-year British lease ran out. And under a 1984 formal agreement, uh, China said we w- we are going to reclaim our territory uh, with you know consent of the British and. Uh, it, it, it will have, as you pointed out, however, a neat formula—one country, definitely—but two mm-hmm. different systems, which allowed Hong Kong to evolve uh, to the to the status we've seen it today. We should note that the democratic and legal infrastructure that was put in by the British was put in shortly before uh, their own departure, but it has evolved to the point where Hong Kong has. In its own mind, developed a uh, distinct personality, a distinct identity. They can't use the word sovereignty, but uh, they have evolved into a, a vibrant democratic international financial center.
0: The U.S. strips Hong Kong of its special status. What what does this do? Well, once
1: uh, once Xi Jinping made this move, then the U.S. responded. We should remind ourselves how we got to this situation. China has slowly been trying to chip away at the one country, two systems formula for quite some time. And the people of Hong Kong have taken to the streets repeatedly uh, Mm -hmm. repeatedly to say, no, that's not on. and, And China backed off until everybody was looking someplace else that is COVID-19, which did originate in China, has distracted the world. And while we are distracted, they've decided to move by uh, putting in the kinds of measures you uh, mentioned. And Donald Trump has now said, okay, we, we now are going to react to this. We're not going to accept it. Uh, and then he did something, uh, a number of things actually, but the main thing that was what you mentioned is stripping them of their special status. Their special status meant even though they were part technically of China, they were a capitalist bastion and a bastion of freedom as well and democracy and rule of law. And that made them very valuable to both to China and the world. But uh, that gave them all kinds of trading privileges. What made Hong Kong so special as a financial hub was that infrastructure and the recognition, uh, for example, under WTO rules that they were a special uh, Uh, system of their own. They couldn't be called a a country, but they had a a status. So what Donald Trump has said is, we are no longer going to recognize, now that Xi Jinping no longer recognizes Hong Kong as a separate place, we aren't going to do so either. So all the special privileges that Hong Kong has uh, enjoyed are no longer going to be there. That's the statement The details, however, uh, are now only now coming under scrutiny, and it may be a whole lot less than it first looked.
0: Uh, The U.S. also uh, looking at sanctions as well against China. This is not going to help the uh, situation. Well, what's interesting, in a way, if you stand back from it,
1: uh, what the United States has said was, okay, if you don't consider any longer Hong Kong to be a special place. We don't consider it to be a special place. We agree with China's position. It's not a special place. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, we, in a sense, are giving up on Hong Kong in the name of defending Hong Kong. It's a rather uh, convoluted
0: position to be taken. Elliot Tepper joining us on the Unpublished Cafe as we talk about Hong Kong. He is a senior fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And, and, and what have you made of Canada's response? It seems to have been a little muted, in, in my opinion. Well, um,
1: Canada is in a, in a very uh, special circumstances of, uh, of our own, as you know, because of the Ming Wanzhou situation and what can only be described as the hostage diplomacy that uh, China has been deploying against us. And by the way, uh, it isn't just against us. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, China has done this with a number of other countries as well. Uh, those countries in the region, South Korea, Japan, also more recently in Scandinavia. So they have a pattern of expressing their displeasure by uh, invoking the Chinese um, rather arbitrary judicial system. And we have two hostages there. That is the kind of thing that will condition any government's response because anything we do could lead to even harsher treatment and as you know we just had uh, the situation of Meng Wanzhou going through our judicial system and her quite strong legal case was dismissed so that uh, she now remains in Canadian nominal custody. She's under house arrest and can wander the city as she wishes from her mansion while our two hostages are under very strict uh, and harsh detention in and china so what a responsible government can do is constrained by what china might do to our own citizens but we have in fact now joined the united states and australia and the uk canada as a a signatory to an international demarche condemning what was done uh, by uh, china in regard to hong kong
0: there are 300,000 Canadians who, who live in Hong Kong. Do you expect them to stay?
1: It's not only those. There's uh, many others that have some kind of a partial UK mm-hmm. citizenship. And then there's, it, it's a global uh, cosmopolitan center. There's people from all around the world who live there. The strength and vitality of Hong Kong, and therefore its utility to, home, to China as an entrepot not only for products, and that's a big one for that. But also for financial um, arrangements, all the financial centers are there. That is diminished if they lose their human capital. And indeed, uh, Canada may benefit uh, from the receipt of a lot of a lot of highly trained, highly motivated, highly skilled uh, Canadian citizens who live in Hong Kong. but uh, it would be a major, major situation to see a transfer of population of that magnitude and it would be a uh, in itself a, a an indicator of the future of Hong Kong.
0: What do you see as China's next step with Hong Kong?
1: They have decided to there's two parts to this. They have decided while the world was preoccupied to finally move against Hong Kong uh, that had been protesting right ag- by name against Xi Jinping and against China. Uh, And they're doing that through their own processes, their own rubber stamp parliament. They're trying to put through the Hong Kong parliament a separate uh, legislative uh, harshly negative process saying that if you insult the national anthem under Hong Kong law, you can then be punished. They're likely to proceed on this. The fact that the world is by and large Written off the response, the pushback against Hong Kong, uh, against China over Hong Kong, will only encourage China. China has can take a measure of the world response. The strong sounding measure by the U.S. president, including the uh, what he was calling the nuclear option of revoking the status we just discussed, none of that actually seems to be considered a serious matter by, for example, the Hong Kong dollar has gone up. The American Stock Exchange has gone up. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange has gone up. So the response so far, the pushback against China is apparently being seen by the most relevant parties as not amounting to very much. Therefore, it's likely that China will, until it sees there's an actual cost,
0: proceed and the Hong Kong we have known is definitely in peril. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the world dealing with China, they seem to be obviously between Hong Kong, you know, obviously some of the blames about uh, the COVID-19 virus. Uh, a lot of people do a lot of a lot of business with China. Do you see that starting to scale back or are people sort of locked in and won't be able to?
1: We are into a... Uh, An extraordinary situation where the type of globalization that has undoubtedly prospered, uh, everyone around the world, including us and country after country, has prospered by the form of globalization, which did benefit China. It it, uh, lifted more people out of poverty than any time in history, human history, but it's done so at the expense of the deindustrialization of the world and that's been behind a lot of the push of the populist movement saying that kind of capitalism doesn't uh, globalism doesn't work for us we're we're opposed to it and it helped elect donald trump president we are in a situation where country after country is now going to say we have to have at least more economic autonomy than we've uh, thought in the past but that in turn means in ways which I don't think has been thought through, that if you're going to have more economic autonomy, that is, if you're going back to reindustrialization, industrialization uh, which is very desirable in so many ways, it also means, um, as in, in market terms, inefficiencies. That is, we're likely to be asked to pay more for products made locally than the kind of global supply chains that have transformed the world so dramatically. The economic implications are not yet known. The political implications, However, we see a rise of nationalism, a return of borders, and, um, and a giant clash now between China and America, the two great powers at the moment. Although the U.S. militarily is a far superior power, it remains to be seen if how the U.S. manages this will only lead to its further diminution as a global power and the further expansion of China as a global power. Very interesting.
0: Elliot, I want to thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Ed. This is an incredible time of, of change and, uh, and, of course, danger. I hope everybody who's listening enjoys our summer but does so safely.
0: Elliot Tepper is a senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And I want to thank you for listening to The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.